there. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. If you're an entrepreneur or a small business person or thinking about becoming one, this show is for you. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. I've counseled lots of startups and small businesses over the past 30 years. And I've also been involved in starting or helping start at least nine different businesses. I have seen so many mistakes. I have made so many mistakes, folks. So one of my goals and the reason I do this show is to share information and resources to help entrepreneurs maybe not make some of those mistakes. And the second goal is to inspire. I found being an entrepreneur is often lonely, confusing. You have no idea if you're on the right track or not. So to help with both those goals, I have guests on the show who are willing to share their stories and their advice and talk about resources available for entrepreneurs. And this week's guest joining me by phone is Ed Durnell. He is the foundation director of something called Nuts, Bolts, and Thingamajigs. And it's the foundation of the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association. And this morning you're going to hear, I think, some things about both of them and some of the amazing things that the foundation is up to. So, Ed, welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Thanks so much for being with me today. Doris, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Well, you know, I love the name. It's so clever, Nuts, Bolts, and Thingamajigs. What is the Nuts, Bolts, and Thingamajigs, or NBT, as I saw on your website, you refer to it as? What is it? What does it do? So you mentioned that we're kind of the mission side of the fabricators and uh, Manufacturers Association, FMA. FMA, real quickly, is made up of really four pillars. One of them is our expo, FabTech. I'm sure many people in the manufacturing uh, world have heard of FabTech, and we are a partner with that, and we put that on every year. The second is our membership and education, where we have close to 2,500 members throughout the country, as well as in, in Mexico and uh, Canada. Thirdly is our circulations. We have a number of circulations throughout Canada uh, and the United States with our, our premier publication being The Fabricator. And then fourth is the mission side, NBT. So it is our mission to connect that next generation of entrepreneurs and manufacturers to consider this as a career pathway into the manufacturing uh, industry. So that's kind of a basis or a, a house of what FMA is made of and then what NBT, uh, how they fit into FMA. Well, what a great goal because we do need talent for the next generation and continuing generations of bright minds and talented people in manufacturing. So how does NBT deliver on its mission? What are some of the programs and offerings that you have? That's, it's a great question. So we have a, a board both at NBT and FMA, and they're made up of manufacturers throughout the country. One of the things that we always talk to our, our members and board members about is like, what is your number one issue? And it's not supply chain. It's not the cost of steel. It's not finding parts. 
it is human resource. So how does NBT help with our members and our industry as far as helping with that human resource need? So we have three programs that that are embedded into NBT, which we're very proud of. Our long-term approach is our, our NBT camp program. It's been around the longest. It's been around for about 15 years. It started with a, a camp in the Rockford, Illinois area. And we're proud to say that this year we'll have 165 camps. In, wow. Yes, it's 165 camps in 25 states and Canada. First time in Canada for us also. So with these camps, what we do is we expose young adults, 12 to 16, to many of them, their first foray into the manufacturing industry. These camps are a week long. They're held at local fab labs, technical schools, universities, and high schools. So last week, I was in Louisville at the University of Louisville. I was at Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis. I was at Harper College in Palatine, Illinois. And then I was at Purdue Northwest in Hammond, Indiana visiting all of the camps. So these camps are made up of young adults. There's normally about 10 to 15 kids in each camp, and they, they get a week-long experience into manufacturing. We help the camps with curriculum. We help the camps with projects. So really, we only look for two major things, and one of them is a project, building a project. It could be a pendulum clock. It could be a coffee table. It could be a number of things which have been done in our camps over, over the decades. And the other thing that we really, really insist is a partnership with local manufacturers. So we want either the manufacturers to come in and talk to the kids, or even better, have the kids go out and take a tour yeah. of a manufacturing plant. As I like to say, Doris, it's a micro macro kind of experience. The micro being building one project and the macro is looking at a manufacturing company build millions of widgets or projects or um, inventory, whatever that is. So that is our first program, uh, which we uh, have at NBT. And like I mentioned, it's the long-term approach. Just a couple of quick questions about the camps. How do you develop new camps? Is you, you look for local sponsors or they come to you now and say, we've heard about this, we want to do one, and you help them put it together? Uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> so, uh, okay. so we do a really good job of recruiting. So we recruit with our current group of camps saying you did one this year. Would you consider doing three next year? And we do a lot of recruiting throughout the country. I talk to um, high schools, colleges, technical schools throughout the country every day. It seems like every day we're talking to new and connecting with folks. Was on a call yesterday with a, a new school in the in Chicago. So we're always talking to potential new partners. Uh, we do a really good job of reaching out in marketing these camps. So a lot of people know about them. And a lot of folks uh, in the last probably four years have said, we want to learn more. How do we get involved? So as I said, we work very closely with the, the local high schools, with um, 
technical colleges, community colleges, four-year colleges, anywhere where they have a fabricating kind of curriculum involved. So that's how we kind of grow it. How did you decide on the 12 to 16 segment? That's a great question. So during COVID in 2020, we did a, a, what we call an impact study. And this impact study really was a peeling back of the onion of our programs. What it said through the number of interviews we had with manufacturers, with teachers, with former students, with administrators, what we have found is that you need to get at these young adults earlier rather than later. Because if you start talking to them, if you start the initial conversation at 16, you've probably lost them already. They've wow. already, there's too much peer pressure, mom and dad, you know, the, the uncle who's the attorney. Television. I mean, I don't know how many, how many future doctors did we have from people glued to Grey's Anatomy, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So what our study has found is that you really need to start somewhere between 12 and 16, preferably 12, because this is when the world is starting to open up to young kids. Mm -hmm. And so that is the thing has been the impetus to get at them earlier. And we had literally a a very uh, lively discussion with our board because our board was like, no, we think you should be reaching out to older and we came, uh, back, we came back with our impact study and we said, we've got the data, we've got the facts, and the data is telling us you got to get to them earlier. Uh, so that's why you want to get to them earlier. Plus, at an earlier age, you're able to start chipping away at the myths and the misunderstandings about manufacturing, which are it's dark, it's dangerous, it's dirty. I don't know about you, Doris, but I go through a number of manufacturing companies annually, and you could eat off the floors. These places, it's not 1950 anymore. It is 2022, and safety for the employee is is tantamount for these business owners. So you go into there, you are very impressed by the way these organizations are run. So that is why we try to get to them earlier, again, is is break down those myths and and make it a career pathway. Well, I want to circle back to those myths, but I derailed you earlier Mm -hmm. when you were talking about the three programs that you have. So I want to let you finish talking about the other two. And then then I think we could circle back and talk more about the myths of manufacturing, because it's a pretty interesting topic, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So our second program, which is kind of our short-term approach, is our scholarship program. We give about ninety dollars to $95,000 a year, which is about 55 to 60 scholarships for the year total to young adults who are going into the manufacturing uh, world. It could be anything from getting your certificate to be a welder, to getting a two-year degree in HVAC, to getting your four-year mechanical engineering. We are very agnostic. We just want individuals who are going into the manufacturing world. We call this our short-term approach because these are the young adults that within the next two or three years that are going to be 
in the manufacturing industry. So we want to get them through their curriculum faster with less debt and burden on them so mm-hmm. they can just jump right in into the industry. It has been a marvelous program. It continues to grow. Uh, and quite frankly, it's an area dear to my heart because I want to grow this even more. I, I would love to be giving away $250 a year. But the cost of education, it's just so shocking. A- absolutely. For kids, you know, anything you can do to help that, I'm sure would would fall on fertile ground. That's for sure. Absolutely. You think about just to your point, the cost of education, a scholarship we give may allow a student to take two or three classes instead of one or two. And again, their progression is moved along faster because they've got this financial support from us. Right. So right. That, that's our second program. And our third program, which is near and dear to us is a new program, which we just started to develop through the kindness and generosity of the Mitsubishi Education America Foundation. So we received a grant from Mitsubishi and Mitsubishi Foundation is geared toward helping those who have special needs. It could be anything from cerebral palsy to blindness, to deafness, to whatever, but they want to make an impact with those who have disabilities. So we came to them in 2019 and said, we have this concept where we want to build a camp that would help young adults who have special needs, help them get into the manufacturing sector. So remember, I said our number one issue with our members and board members is human resource. Right. This is an area that's overlooked and it's fertile. It's young uh, adults who are looking for jobs, many times are overlooked, who are very capable, who are very um, excited about getting into the industry. So we're having our first two camps this year. Our first one was in Triton College in River Forest. Our second one will be up in Appleton, Wisconsin at the uh, end of August. And our third one will be in Tampa, Orlando, Florida in 2023. We are in the process of developing that. So because of Mitsubishi's kindness and generosity, we were able to kind of work in the lab, be the mad scientist and develop (laughs) this program. So what we're learning very quickly is that it's a partnership. You have to have coordination of partners. So the partners are usually, there's four partners involved. There is the social service side, there's the educational side, there's the business side. Businesses have to be intimately involved here. And then there's the student side. So we bring these these four sectors together to form a camp And they learn soft skills, how to interview, how to interact in an office, how to work within a manufacturing plant. They learn hard skills. So they learn, they get training at the school of what it's like to work with a lathe or work with a CNC machine or whatever. And then the third area is actual small little internships going into the companies and working for a week or two and learning what it is to be in a manufacturing setting. So we're very excited about this. Again, we're still kind of in the beta process of this, 
but we are really, really excited. And this is an area where we will be growing over the, the coming years. I don't think we'll ever get to 165 of these. Who's to stop us from getting to 25? Yeah. What I love about how you've described this program is that you stay connected and keep these individuals within the manufacturing community. Because, you know, I think back to my summer camps and I had a great time and it was interesting, but there were a lot of distractions. I mean, there's even more today. You know, once I was gone, sort of out of sight, out of mind. So I like the idea that you're actively trying to engage some of the uh, camp participants in internships and, you know, ways to keep them kind of in touch and part of that community, which I think is going to be a really successful piece of it, is my guess. I would agree with you totally. I would agree. You know, I can tell the passion in your voice. I mean, I can just, it just shines right through. And talk about your background a little bit and how did you get involved with the Nuts, Bolts and Thingamajigs Foundation? So I've had an interesting journey. I started off as a finance major at Indiana University and I spent 20 plus years in banking. I was in commercial banking and then got into private banking and then got into the advisory side of it. So I was managing a fairly large uh, private banking division for a publicly traded company and uh, got to know all kinds of sectors as well as all kinds of uh, individuals of wealth. So as I like to say, I, I had the privilege of getting under the hood of very many wealthy people. <laughs> and so I, again, I, I would be in manufacturing plants, I'd be at startups, I'd be at a number of industries and advising individuals about their legacy and about how they want to go about preserving and growing their wealth. So 2008 comes along and everyone knows that that was a recession a very, and a very bad time for any financial sector. And I happened to be on a committee for the Alexian Brothers Hospital, and they were in the process of going through a feasibility study to find out if they should be build a women and children's hospital. Oh. So I was on that committee. They had a, a, a change in management in their foundation. And the individual, the woman who was in charge of our committee became the head of their foundation. So one day we met and we were kind of talking about how we could partner closer. And finally, she looked at me and she says, I want to hire you. You're exactly the guy I'm looking for. And I'm like, well, I've never been in philanthropy. I've been in banking my whole <laughs> life. She goes, it doesn't matter. I, I, I need someone who's comfortable with C-suite, business owners, wealthy people. Because it basically is the same kind of networking, the same kind of thought process, oh, talking about legacy and whatnot. Yeah. So long story short, I took a leap of faith. And in 2008, I became a member of the Alexium Brothers Foundation and spent six years there and loved 
every minute of it. I, uh, I, I love the brothers. I love their mission. I just think it was a uh, so impactful experience for me. And then eventually I, I became the uh, executive director of Norwegian American Hospitals Foundation because of my background in uh, healthcare with Alexian and spent three years there and then had an opportunity to go at nuts, bolts and thingamajigs and I thought it was a great opportunity because I was going to be able to apply kind of my finance banking background along with my philanthropic background. And it has been really just a lot of fun over the last four and a half years I've been with NBT and FMA. I've had a great experience. We've made an impact. We're going to continue to make an impact. And uh, it's been a wonderful experience for me. I'm very blessed to be with FMA and MBT. Well, you're certainly making a difference and it's got to be inspiring. Let's circle back to the myths that we were talking about before. I mean, I think one of the myths is maybe that manufacturing plants are dark or dangerous or sweatshops or whatever. But I think another one is that people worry the jobs are all going away, right? Robots are taking over the world. How true is that? And where are the safe jobs in manufacturing? Where do you see things evolving and growing there? Great question. So I tell people failure is not an option with NBT because you have three potential outcomes. One of them is moving the manufacturing jobs to India, to China, to Mexico, that's a loss of jobs. The other possibility is automation, robotics, and that's a loss of jobs, even though there will be a need for someone to run the robot. Program the robots and fix the robot. But there's still a loss of manufacturing jobs because the robot is now doing the work of maybe three or four people. Right. And the third option, which is the option we have to concentrate on, is training. Training young adults to get into this industry. So I think some of the greatest growth is going to be in the manufacturing side. Many of our members are mom and pop and they're tool and die. And I would say at least 50% of our, our membership is made up of companies under $25 million in revenue. Wow. So so there is this tremendous opportunity for this entrepreneurial spirit to really explode because of the fact that manufacturing, I think, is the third or the fourth largest industry in the United States, only behind steel, automotive, and agricultural, I think. And it plays such a vital role as far as like connecting all the industry. Building an automobile brings in steel, brings in fabricating, brings in manufacturing. Electronics. It's a collaboration. And we need that next generation of entrepreneurs in the manufacturing realm to be able to 
push the industry forward. It's so vital to the overall economy of the United States that, again, as I mentioned, failure is not an option. We have to push forward and do these things to be able to help with the industry continue to make it vibrant and strong as it is. What kinds of skills do you see as being the most needed and and maybe a related question, the, the, the least likely to be outsourced to robotics in the near future? I would say there's three areas that there's opportunity. First and foremost is in the trades. I like to say I can find an accountant or a lawyer on every corner, <laughs> but I can't find anyone who can be a plumber or uh, an electrician or a welder. I can't can't find people. That's not just manufacturing. That's like my home, you know. Where's the handyman, the guy that's supposed to fix my plumbing or my electrician? I can't get him, right? And, Everybody. And when you endorse, when you find them, you ain't sharing them with anyone. Exactly. <laughs> so, so that's that's the key. Is really encouraging the individuals who want to use their hands. You know, mom and dad want their child to be the next Clarence Darrow, and all they want to do is be underneath the hood of a car. So let's <laughs> encourage that. Yeah. Let, let, let's grow that. So there's that trade side. The next thing is, I would say, the, the design side. So being able to design things that are going to be needed within the manufacturing. There's such a need for good designers. Are you talking about like CAD CAM skills? Correct. Exactly. Exactly. And then the third area is kind of the coding area. There's such a need. I was at a camp at Purdue where they built robots. They then coded the robots to go through the the maze and course that they had developed. And then they had to drive their robot through the course and to make sure that it was built well and that the coding was correct. And if it wasn't going back and making sure you could correct the coding. And oh, by the way, these are 12 and 13 year old kids. Yeah. Way above, way above my, my pay grade. And I'm just utterly amazed at the ingenuity, the brilliance of these young kids and the way they catch on to do this stuff. Yeah, there's going to be a need in all three of those areas. I mean, a CNC machine, I tell people all the time, there ain't no dummies running CNC machines. What is CNC? So it's, it's kind of like precision grinding. And so you get a machine that's going to build a precision bit for, let's say, for a manufacturer or for a government or for the military. And it has to be this bit or this this uh, piece that you are going to build via the CNC machine, which does the work of the drilling and whatnot. They have to be able to uh, to um, to plug this in, to code it, to make sure that they have the right specs. And then they have to have an understanding after the piece is completed, does it meet the specs of what the customer is looking for? Gotcha. And it better be with, be with when one one hundredth, if not one one thousandth. <laughs> so it's kind of that kind of uh, precision that these machines make these parts yeah. and it's the individual who's programming that machine and who eventually will look at that piece and say the quality of this is good or not good so yeah it's amazing to watch these individuals who run these machines 
And like I said, there's no dummies. They're very bright, intelligent. Yeah. And not only that, most of them have got their start working on a manual lathe and they get that feel and that touch and they work their, themselves up. And all of a sudden that feel and touch becomes part of the machine that they're using also. Interesting. So, you were mentioning coding as a key skill. Just as a funny side story, my daughter is just finishing up her master's degree in statistics. There's plenty of jobs for people in data analytics and statistics. I'm sure that's true in manufacturing as well for people who might be interested in that aspect. But uh, it's funny. The one thing she says she wished she had done differently was to take more coding classes, take a coding camp, do some online stuff, take a course at school. In general, people from all different majors are taking coding classes. So, so if you have kids out there or you're a young person listening, do think about coding because it is one of those skills that I think is permeating lots and lots of parts of our economy and will be a really valuable skill for people to have going forward. No question about it. Uh, technology just keeps moving forward, sometimes at a breakneck uh, speed. And so for you to keep up with this, you have to have an understanding of how it's developing. And coding is one of the major areas that's really uh, blossoming. And again, I I'm seeing kids 10 years old who are coding. Oh, I mean, I, and, yeah. and they're very comfortable in that realm. So it's an area that will only keep growing, especially as we start to develop more AI and we yep. start to develop more uh, technologically advanced machine and equipment. Yep. It's, it's going to be more and more prevalent everywhere. Right. So, yeah, uh, your, your daughter's spot on. That's yeah. Awesome. So but you parents listening, if you can find ways to help your kids become more comfortable coding, if that's something they have any interest in at all, it will serve them well, I think. Um, you know, one of the other areas that I want to talk about is you mentioned the number of small businesses that are members of the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association, which that took me by surprise. You know, let's say you're a young person, you've got a hankering to maybe run your own business. I mean, I think most people think about manufacturing jobs as maybe big car manufacturers or big Fortune 500 companies. But I have no doubt that there are lots of and will be in the future lots of opportunities for people who have an interest in starting their own business, you know, whether it's making a product or providing a service. Where do you see some of the most interesting possibilities for future entrepreneurs in the manufacturing world? I think any kind of fabricating business is going to continue to grow. So a great example is that the automotive, when they go to put in a muffler, that fabricating of that muffler and that, and that uh, tailpipe is not done by Ford or whatever. It's done by a job shop uh, uh -huh. somewhere in maybe, you know, could be Rochester, Minnesota, or it could be Knoxville, uh -huh. Tennessee or whatever. So there's always going to be a need for that fabricating end of it because Ford is more of a of 
putting together the jigsaw rather than actually putting the get, uh, making the parts. So uh, the, the area to all, uh, I would say is any kind of fabricating, will, there will always be a need for that. And that's an area where you see guys who start literally in the trunk of their car or in their garage and they get one machine. And next thing you know, 20 years later, you know, they've got a $40 million business. And so that's kind of how these things evolve. I would also say that there's plenty of growth on the manufacturing side. So during the pandemic, it was amazing to see that it depended on what side of your business if you did well. So if you were in the healthcare or you were in the physical fitness arm, you couldn't keep up with the business you were getting. I heard Peloton, for example, it was back ordered for quite some time and it, their prices went up and up and up. Exactly. The amount of home workout equipment was astronomical. It was amazing. We had one of our members who said he had taken on a job from like a life fitness group. It was $60,000 order. He's like, yeah, it was a one-off order. And he said, two years later, it's the one thing that kept his company afloat. Wow. They, because they took this small little order. Next thing it blossomed into, you know, millions and millions of dollars because that company couldn't keep up with the orders that they were getting. People were locked in their homes. Same with healthcare. Healthcare was expanding during the pandemic, couldn't get enough beds, couldn't get enough of all the other uh, equipment that wasn't going to be needed to fight the, the COVID. If you were on that side of the manufacturing, you couldn't keep up. Yeah. You just couldn't keep yeah. up. You were having record sales. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of us have this, and this goes back again to the topic of myth. A lot of us think about maybe the automotive industry or something, you know, when you think about manufacturing. But really, if you just, you know, wherever you're sitting, look around you and see the furniture you're sitting on or the computer you're typing on or, you know, the products you use to take a shower or do your morning routine. Somebody has to make all that stuff. Somebody has to design it and be involved in the purchasing and the supply chain and making it and getting it to people, right? Absolutely. When I go speak at these camps that we go to every year, I always say, has any of you ever heard of Apple? And they look at me <laughs> and they're like, of course we've heard of Apple. Right. I said, do you realize that Apple started in the garage of Mark Wozniak's mother? It was a small entrepreneurial business when it started off. Yeah. Now it's probably the greatest company in the world today. And they make stuff. And it's amazing how the manufacturing process just blossoms and grows to, I'm not saying every person that gets into manufacturing is going to have an Apple experience. Right. What I'm saying, what I'm saying is there's, there's a potential that it can happen. Right. That interesting. I mean, well, we'll always need plumbers and tradespeople. And by the way, a lot of those people make a really fine living. I'm not sure. That's a myth that I think people don't quite understand. But some of those folks who have built those businesses make a mighty fine living. 
But the companies that can blend the technology with manufacturing, that interesting sweet spot where Apple and Microsoft and some of these other companies, there's some pretty, I think, some pretty interesting things that are going to develop. I um, had a guest not too long ago on the show from Harper College talking about drones and the drone programs Mm -hmm. and uh, all the things that are likely to happen with drones. And I'm just thinking you know, there's a great intersection of technology and manufacturing. Somebody has to make the drone. Somebody has to program them. Somebody has to have the knowledge of what industries need to use the drones, right? So just that little sub-segment of the world alone, lots of opportunities. Uh, no question. We we uh, were in Tampa, Florida, where uh, one of our camps had a drone coding camp and they built the drone and they had to code the the drone and then they had to um, uh, program it to pick up a small box and move it from one end of the room to the other. (laughs) And just to your point, Doris, it was an amazing thing to watch. Yeah. And, And you're absolutely right. And who knows what other industries are going to pop up in the next Absolutely. Who even knew about drones 10 years ago? It wasn't even a a thing as far as I know. Who knew about cell phones 25 years ago? I mean, I'm going to date myself, but I remember when a cordless phone, it wasn't called a cell phone, it was a cordless phone, was the size of a football. (laughs) And you had this huge like box next to your ear. Yeah. And now... Everyone, literally everyone has a cell phone that is probably an inch wide and fits into your jeans or your sport jacket or whatever. And literally you can't live without it. They they bypass the whole landline in many in many countries. They went straight to cell phones. So look at places like the Philippines and Malaysia and you see people and they all have cell phones. Well, they just bypass the whole developing landlines they just who needed them anymore <laughs> you're you're 100 correct and i think that's only going to get i mean landlines are going to be probably extinct in the next decade if not sooner it's just amazing to see the progress of technology and how manufacturing is trying to keep up with that that technology, that tsunami, that it's not slowing down, that's for sure. No. Well, I want to touch on another myth and one that's near and dear to my heart. You know, one of the things I really try to do with the show, and I really try very hard to feature lots of women entrepreneurs as well as other disadvantaged entrepreneurs. But, you know, to me, the the myths around women in manufacturing is kind of interesting. Uh, for whatever reason, I happen to see something about Rosie the Riveter and, you know, that predates us, Ed, but in the throes of World War II, women were celebrated. Rosie the Riveter was this iconic sort of powerful woman who was helping with the war effort and, you know, actually doing riveting and welding. And it was celebrated. Right. Mm -hmm. But today there aren't many women in manufacturing. They're certainly way underrepresented. And I'm sure you've got better statistics than, than anybody about that. And even 
fewer who have started their own manufacturing company or own a manufacturing company or even in senior management positions. So what's going on there? How did we fall from celebrating Rosie the Riveter to somehow women in manufacturing is kind of an anomaly? I, I would tell you that I, I could not agree with you more. We need our next Rosie the Riveter moment. People don't realize during World War II, the tanks were built by women. The airplanes were built by women. The rifles and guns were built by women. The men were out fighting. The women were building this stuff. We have about a two million person skills gap today, and it's only growing. So, so what do you mean by that? So there's a need within the manufacturing industry for X amount of people, and we have a shortage of the need of, of individuals by about 2 million. They can't find the welders. They can't find the plumbers, the HVAC, the trades. They can't find them. And on top of that, we have this current generation, the boomers, are starting to retire. Yep. And there is no backfill. There's no one to take up the mantle of the manufacturer. So looking at men and women, so let's say it's just 50-50, women only make up about 12% of the, of the manufacturing uh, employment. That's crazy. It's crazy. Now, imagine if you just got that number to 30%, you would not have a skills gap. You would have abundant skilled labor just by encouraging women to get into the industry. And the way NBT does it is we have what we call glow and gadget camps, which are just for young ladies. Glow is a welding camp and gadget is a design camp where young ladies experience working with other young ladies who are taught by ladies how to find their way into the manufacturing world. And we highly encourage this. We are not going to get through through the skills gap shortage unless we encourage more women to get into the industry. So, so what's going on, do you think? What does your research or your anecdotal evidence say about why no one wants to be Rosie the Riveter or what, what happened? So I think they're the myth of, of, again, dirty, dark and dangerous but that's for men and women. I think there's a misunderstanding as to the wage that you can make. So a welder manager will be making $125,000 and many of these young adults who are welding, wow. welding managers, they'll be doing that at 28 or 29 years old. Right. Whereas some of my daughter's friends have taken jobs at, with a college degree and a lot of debt and they're starting out at 50 or 60, and they're happy to have a job. Exactly. And then I think the third area is just, it's unladylike, and we got to get beyond that. Because I'll tell you, you go to these glow and gadget camps, the way I describe it is men are linear and women are dimensional. So you give a a man a task, and he's going to get through A, through B, through C, through D. And that's wonderful to get through the task. But if you're like concepting and designing and 
trying to figure out something, you want a woman doing that because they think in three, four, five dimensions. And I've had that told to me by, by manufacturing owners probably a dozen times. So I, I, it's not something that Ed's making up. This is something Ed's been told. That women are just good at designing or conceptualizing products. Yeah, exactly. But if, if you if you got a project that has a deadline and it's got to get done, you probably want to give that to a man. There's women who can do that, but men are going to be like, they're going to go through brick walls, you're going to get that project done. <laughs> and again, this is what is being told to me by, by manufacturing owners. But if you want to design and develop new products, new services, within the manufacturing realm, you want a woman leading the charge because they are far more think out of the box. Have you thought of this? Why don't we do this? They're far, they take far more risk. They are comfortable with the level of risk. They're, they're wonderful. It's just amazing to watch. It's almost like we need some of the few women who are in leadership positions in manufacturing whether they're in big companies or they have their own companies, they somehow convince some of them to be more vocal and more spend more time in outreach because their stories need to be told. So at Elgin Community College, two years ago, they graduated, I think, 10 ladies with through their welding program. All 10 of them got jobs. And if I'm not mistaken, and again, I haven't talked to them recently, but I do believe that that had grown to like 15. They had now a new class come in. It was like 15 women. So it's very encouraging to see young ladies looking at things like being an electrician or being a welder. And they're getting beyond that because we need them to. Yeah, and we, we need them in the industry. I, I when I see a young lady who is getting into um, uh, the manufacturing industry, I'm very very thankful, and it brings a lot of pride to me. The one thing I would say is go go on our website. We had a, a lady, a young lady at our gala last year, a woman by the name of Madison Martin, who was inspired. She was in one of our NBT camps. And she went and got a welding certificate and had just graduated and was going to become a welder for a local business. And it was all because of an MBT camp. And she yeah. spoke at our gala. It was just, it was very moving. And we need more people like that. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, what a wonderful opportunity for women in trades. I mean, you want to start your own company and have a, you know, a women electrician business you're probably going to have a lot of doors open to you. Uh, So the way I look at it is 30 years ago, the manager would say, I don't want a woman on that manufacturing line today. They're like, when can she start? (laughs) Well, that's great. And that's a, that's a great attitude to have because we need to encourage with open arms, more inclusion, no question. You mentioned that NBT has been in existence for about 15 years. And we've been doing the camps for 15 years. We've been in existence for about 20, 23, 24. Oh, wow. Well, so 
talk about some of the successes of the program. I mean, you're you're taking kids with kind of a snapshot between 12 and 16, but you've now got some history to see what happens to some of those kids and talk about the successes of the program. So as I mentioned, we had Madison Martin speak at our gala and it was a it was just a wonderful speech that she gave about how she was inspired by being in an MBT camp. And we look for those stories every day. We want to connect with those students. We've had young adults who have had um, scholarships who have come and spoken at events and how important a role a scholarship played for them to get through their program. And now they're in the manufacturing industry. Just the fact that 15 years ago, we had one camp and today we have 165. I mean, that's astronomical. That is insane. I don't even, I'm just thinking of as a, as an entrepreneur, the skills that you need. And by the way, there's a, a great episode a previous episode where I had someone on from nonprofits talking about the entrepreneurial skills you need to grow a nonprofit. Ed, you're living proof of this. And NBT is that to go from running a couple of camps locally to 165 all over the country and in Canada too, is a scaling challenge in and of itself, just by the way. (laughs) It is. We have a wonderful program director and trust me, she's very busy all the time. And I think our board has been very adamant that they eventually want us to get to about 250 camps, (gasps) probably over the next five years. Wow. Um, And so I pause for a moment because as you mentioned, scale, you mentioned human resource to be able to do that. And you also have to think about funding. (laughs) So these are things that kind of keep me up at night because as I've mentioned a couple of times, failure is not an option. So we have to figure out how to do this. And we will, we will, because as we ask our industry to be entrepreneurial, so should we NBT be entrepreneurial. You mentioned funding. I assume that the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association is the primary source of funding for the NBT program, but probably not the only source. Talk about that for just a second. You're right. So NBT basically covers the costs of our administration. And what I mean by that is our salaries and our, you know, our rental of desk and IT and all that is paid for by FMA. So what that guarantees is that every dollar raised, 100% of the dollars we raise goes toward our programs. We get a a $100,000 grant from an organization, they can be assured that $100,000 will be put to our programs. We have partnered with a number of manufacturers throughout the country, uh, Amada, is a huge sponsor, Cincinnati in uh, manufacturing in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Great, great partner. Mitsubishi, as I mentioned, great, great partner. Trump, great, great partner. And, you know, there's many, many, many others that have sponsored us. This year, we were, first year, we got a national sponsor for our camps through Nestle uh, USA. So the word is getting out. And we're making inroads into raising more dollars. 
But the bottom line is, if we want to continue this growth, we have to continue growing our funding sources. We've had great partners support these camps uh, over the last five years, Miller Electric, CNA, Farmers Insurance, groups like that. They've been funding us for a number of years. So we partner with a lot of people and we'll continue to do that. And it's it's a labor of love. We, we love connecting with people. Many of the people that are donating to us want a legacy because of their uh, involvement in the manufacturing industry all their life. Yeah. So that's kind of how we, we do it. The time has just flown by, and I kind of suspected it would, Ed. But if people are interested in learning more about FMA or about the Nuts, Bolts, and Thingamajig Foundation, what's the best way for them to learn more and to connect? Uh, the Nuts and, Nuts and Bolts and Thingamajigs website is nutsandboltsfoundation.net. So uh, you can go on to that website and that that will really break down everything, our programs, our events. You can meet our board of directors. You can see the number of things that we do. Obviously, there's some great videos on there, by the way, that are really fun to watch just as a footnote. So sorry to interrupt. No, no, that's that's quite all right. We really, really uh, try to bring forward all the uh, most pertinent things. We put our annual report, we put our uh, newsletters, we put our impact study, all these things are on that website that kind of gives you an understanding as well as our events. We've got our gala coming, uh, which will be in October. We always have room for new people who want to learn more about us through our events. The one cool thing about our gala Doris, is that we have an art auction. Uh Instead of a silent auction, we have an art auction. And many of the artists put together fabricating art. So you'll have uh, Uh someone who does like an eagle and it's been fabricated or they'll do a fire pit or whatever. Even though it's an art auction, we really want we want to praise the the manufacturing fabricating industry for sure. Terrific. Ed, thanks so much for being with me this week. It was really interesting and inspiring, honestly, to listen to the work that the Nuts, Bolts, and Thingamajigs Foundation is doing to help encourage the next generations in manufacturing. So thanks so much for joining me and sharing what you've been up to at NBT. Doris, thank you so much for this time we've had. We really appreciate it. We really want to make an impact in the industry. And we are very thankful and grateful for a partner like you. Folks, I encourage you to check out the website. And if you're looking for courses at community colleges or locally, or you have kids, make sure you look for these camps. And uh, I'm sure with 165, you're going to find one probably close to you. So thanks again. And thanks to my listeners. You're the reason I do this. You can find helpful information and resources on my consulting website, which is globalocityservicesplural.com. There's all sorts of resources there for small business people and entrepreneurs. I have a new radio show website called the SavvyEntrepreneur.org. So check that out. You'll start to see more and more content there. If you have comments, questions, suggestions, 
want to be a guest, you know, a great guest, or you just want to shoot the breeze, email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at thesavvyentrepreneur.org. Check out and my site too, past show recordings. There's just an amazing library of interviews with all sorts of entrepreneurs and resources for small businesses. If you have a chance, subscribe, listen to, be sure to join me again next Saturday at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring. <laughs>